0: As yes, you have big experience in orchestra playing as concert master, uh, many young violinists often ask me how actually do you get to the orchestra. What 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 can you advise them? What kind of skills you need and how to get a job in the orchestra?
1: Yes, that that's uh, I I love your questions, Maxim. You are very uh, very good at this. Um, hey, yes. Uh, You know, uh, I think there are two, no, I I, I feel I'm generalizing a little bit too much today. I don't mean to do that, but it's always interesting to just look at big, big, um, uh, the big picture. And I think that sometimes you have the feeling that people sit down in the orchestra because they didn't succeed in becoming a big soloist and then they settle for the second best. Um, sometimes that works absolutely wonderful uh, and they get to be very uh, enthusiastic about the orchestra albums, they get to try it. But sometimes also uh, you have this feeling that uh, uh, some people sit in an orchestra and they are not quite comfortable because they feel that this is not exactly the place I would love to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think other people who are maybe... Maybe the same level of uh, of uh, instrumentalists, but they they really love playing in the orchestra, so that is actually their top choice. And then I think they maybe enjoy being in the orchestra even more. And um, I think I think where I'm heading with this is just that I think that for young people, if I was to give uh, advice when it comes to joining an orchestra. I think you have to ask yourself, uh, is this what I really want to do? Um, And if it is, I think playing in an orchestra can be a wonderful thing. And for me, it has given me so much um, because I've always loved playing in the orchestra. Of course, there are frustrating times and there are meetings and there are sometimes conflicts between people between members of the orchestra or between the orchestra and the management or whatever. Of course, there are things there, but but um, you can have this wonderful experience and the symphonic repertoire, of course, is is amazing. So, so I think um, the whole business from you decide that you want to go to an orchestra and even during the preparation for the audition, um, I think it's important to have this background, the the general feeling that this is is really something that I want. And um, for me, I've been sitting in so many juries, you know, uh, for orchestral auditions. And one thing that is very obvious is that sometimes you get a candidate who plays the Mozart concerto and the Brahms concerto, Absolutely, amazingly. They they play it so good that, that you think that, ah, this person could probably stand in front of the orchestra instead of sitting in the orchestra. But then you come to the orchestral excerpts, uh, maybe the Prokofiev Classical Symphony, the Mozart uh, E-flat Major Symphony, uh, and then suddenly the level of playing is absolutely totally on a different planet. Maybe there are wrong notes, maybe you feel that, uh, the dynamics are not there at all. And then you start thinking, why Why is it like this? And and the answers, I think, are not always so encouraging because then you feel that this person loves playing the violin very much and is a great instrumentalist, but is not interested in the orchestral repertoire. And that is not a very good sign. So I would rather have something somebody then that plays the Mozart and Brahms it has to be good, but maybe not to the level where you think that as a soloist, I would engage this person. But then you then you can see that they have put equally uh, uh, much practice into the excerpts. And you can feel that they really stress themselves to get it in perfect rhythm, to get all the dynamics, and even maybe to play it with a bit of emotion, you know. And... And then I think, well, now this is an orchestral player. This is the person I would like to have next to me on Monday. So this is is quite literally an advice I would give to anybody who wants to to, um, show up for an orchestral audition. Uh, Practice the excerpts just as much as you practice the solo repertoire and do it with joy <laughs> because this means that you are engaged in what the job is actually about. And the jury is going to realize that. So I think that's, that's my number one advice to anybody who wants to do an audition actually.
0: Mm. And if uh, we are talking about, uh... A difference between two t-player and concertmaster because for example i personally love to lead the orchestra play solo work in the team but i know some people who just get scared just because of the program which you have to play in the audition and uh, to take responsibility to lead the orchestra and what do you think how, how does it differs
1: it does differ a little bit because um Obviously, except for the big solos, um, you are playing the same part. Um, so, so you can imagine that uh, there are a lot of similarities between being the the section leader or the concertmaster or being a tutti player. Lots of similarities, uh, but of course, uh, people are different personalities, and and um, to be able to. To lead and take that responsibility, um, it's not it's not something that suits everyone. At the same time as being a tutti musician, where we where we never maybe can can um, decide uh, which way things are going, that's also not for everyone. Some some people have have an energy and a confidence that are more towards that they want to influence things. But what is important for me is that um, I'm not that old, but I've lived long enough that I know that there are tutti players that I that I respect every single bit as much as I respect a big, great section leader, because to be able to be a fantastic tutti player, it requires so much sensibility and uh, uh, or actually sensitivity is the right word. Um, to, to understand when do you have to maybe give a little bit to, to really support the sound and the strength of the section and when do you have to maybe uh, take a step back and, and try to be the glue between maybe you have one colleague on each side who is a little bit too forceful and maybe, maybe not in the quite right place in their lives. Maybe they would like to sit in the front and maybe they are a little bit too edgy and playing with that uh, sound that is a little bit sticking out. If you are a fantastic section player, then then you try somehow to adapt your sound so that you are building a bridge and making... It's actually possible for a good section player to soften a colleague that is not so um, sensitive in, in, in his or her playing. And I've seen some examples uh, of that and, and I, I, I absolutely love those musicians. And very often actually, even though they cannot influence the big decisions that the leaders can do, and they are aware that their, their um, job and what they are doing in terms of balancing the section, they realize that that is very important. And sometimes they realize that it actually does influence the result a little bit. So, I've met people in that category that uh, are absolutely not bored with their job. Uh, they have maybe been working for 20, 30 years and they are still engaged in the music and they are still keen on playing, even though they are never in the front and, and being, uh, you know, the big applause and, and uh, the big respect from the conductor and things. So, so I think it comes down a little bit to what, what your personality is like and, and what your abilities, where, where do you get the best use of what you can do? And, uh, and uh, I have sometimes enjoyed a lot being in the section. Uh, but I also, obviously, I enjoy being a concert master because I've been doing it so much. And mm-hmm. um, so, so I think there is no, uh, um, I think it's very linked to the personality, actually, more than the, more the personality than the levels.
0: Hmm. All right. Hmm. And about teaching, what qualities you need to teach a student?
1: <laughs> yeah, well, that's also, that's also a very big question because I think, um, uh, with that, as well as other other things in life and music and uh, whatever, um, there are so many ways of doing it. Uh, I mean, I've seen uh, teachers with great authority who just say, do that and do that and do that. And it can work fantastically. And I've seen other teachers who are much more sort of trying to Search out the best in the students and and being taking a step back and not influencing too much directly and it can also be wonderful. So I think that um, uh, uh, the symbiosis. Of course, the teacher has to first of all has to know what he or she is talking about. I, I mean, one has to have some uh, quality and some idea about how things can be done. Other than uh, if, if you don't have that, of course, it's pointless. But after that, I think the symbiosis between the student and the teacher uh, is, is absolutely crucial because some students they need one style of teaching, and other students need a totally different style of teaching. And I bet you have also seen this a lot of times that, yeah. that one student just blossoms with one teacher mm-hmm. and another student. With the same teacher it turns out to be a nervous breakdown, you know. So, 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 so I, uh, I, I, I wouldn't dare to say any, anything specifically about, uh, what is a good teacher and what is a bad teacher. I think the good teacher is, is the one that, uh, manages to, to get the best out of a student. And, uh, and that th- there are so many ways of doing it. My personal take is, um, is um, I'm trying to see each student on a very individual basis. And that means, uh, of course, that some students, um, it will work very well with what I have to offer. Other students, maybe not so much. Uh, And that's something one has to find out once one starts working. What I've found in my life is that... uh, they're not necessarily the technically most advanced students, and I, 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 my experience is not necessarily that those are the ones that I enjoy teaching the most, and that I maybe also make the biggest difference for. What I found is that um, students who want, who has this, um, have this uh, urge to develop. Maybe they're not so good when they start, uh, but but they they um, they have great interest and they they must be also a bit intelligent, I think, to try to um, uh, think how can I how can I develop in my best way. Sometimes I've I've had this feeling that over maybe four years in uh, in school, sometimes they I, I I can see miracles happen happening, you know, from the first to the last year. Uh, and those are not necessarily the ones that were the best students in the first year, but they end up very good. so uh, and that that is probably my biggest motivation for teaching also, because to to be able to help those kind of people and to see that happening is is always a, a great experience. Mm. Um, yeah
0: I, I was recently reading in the uh, Strad. Uh, Boris Kushneri was telling, uh, if you have one hour of practicing, how should you practice? And how, in your opinion, should look best practicing, like day of practicing, let's say?
1: Um, I have one, one angle of looking at that, that is maybe a bit controversial, because I've always been told in my life, that it's not it's not so much the amount of hours uh, in a day, but it's the concentration, the, the, the focused work that is the most important. And um of course, I don't I'm I'm not opposing that. I mean, focused practice is of course much better than unfocused practice while you are watching TV or something. But um what I found um, um, and as I told you, my personality when I was a student was maybe a little bit, I was a bit too divided. I loved also going out with my friends, having drinking beer and playing billiards. And, and I, I wasn't this kind of nerdy person who was standing in the practice room for seven hours a day. But what I realized was that I maybe needed a little bit more of that nerve. I needed, yeah. I needed to uh, fight a bit to be able to, to get Proper work done. But sometimes I found that it was a bit difficult for me, this, uh, this matter of concentrated, focused practicing, because I found that if I did that for an hour or two, then I was exhausted. And, and I realized that an hour or two, no matter how focused it is, it's not enough, you know, when you are trying to build technique and build muscle, muscles. So I was struggling trying to increase uh, the, the uh, amount of hours while still filling it with focused work. And that was when uh, my teacher that I mentioned earlier, Camilla Wicks, she came up with an idea that was very contradictory to, to every, every, everything I'd heard before. Because she said, no, start the other way around decide on the amount of hours Uh and just stand in that goddamn room (laughs) Uh and play the violin for those hours. And then if you do that for a while, then you will develop the ability to fill that with more and more focus. And Uh for me, that was a very, very new idea. And for me that worked very well. So I stood there for five hours for a week or two every day. And Probably a lot of those hours to begin with were not very focused. But then it was almost like training and muscle. Uh, I found that I was able to fill that uh, those hours with more and more sensible work. And then in the end, I was where I wanted to be. And to me, that was the right way of getting there instead of just trying to expand the quality work because that was very heavy. Uh-huh. So that, that's that's a bit of a it's probably she's probably not the only one who has said something like that, but it's the only one I've heard say something like that, and and um, I think it's a good advice actually for some mm. people.
0: And uh, what the uh, best uh, material to warm up?
1: Yes, I've been through different different periods. Um, I once read uh, uh, an interview with Henrik Sedin, and he. Of course, he was a master of everything with his left hand. His intonation was unbelievable. And he said that the best way of getting in shape quickly for him was uh, the flesh scale system. Mm. And I was inspired by that. So I started practicing the flesh scale system. But my problem with that was that I thought it was so incredibly difficult. It was <laughs> it was just so to, to be able to play through a whole key with every exercise it was so difficult. Um, but again, uh, Camilla Weeks changed a little bit for me um, because I had been doing this the wrong way. I've been starting with a C major and then I've been trying to practice that over and over again to, to sort of try to master it. And then when I thought, oh, this is maybe okay now, then I would move to the A minor. But she said that, no, you should do, you should change the key every day. You just do as, you do as well as you can, uh, but you change the key. And then when you have gone in circles, a lot of times, then you will start mastering the whole thing. And for me, that also was very true. So for a period I would do one hour and a half every day with the flesh scale system. And I thought it was, it was really good to build strength. And uh, uh, then I had another period, which I also found was very interesting, and that was uh, the Kreutzer Etudes, uh-huh. um, because uh, they are very good in the way that they are not so difficult to play, uh-huh. uh, but they are very specific in what you are trying to achieve in, in the sort of in terms of a technical aspect. Um, And that that I thought was very interesting because some etudes, you know, the most extreme case being the Paganini Caprices, they are so difficult to play that I don't know if I don't quite know, at least for somebody with my kind of technique, the relevance for building technique. I don't know if that was really present because because it's just so acrobatic that it's it's hard to just survive it. But the Kreutzer tubes is in the other end of the scale and they are, they are much more um, doable and still very clear. This is for the bow, this is for string crossings, this is for legato, this is for different things. Uh, so what I did with the Kreutzer tubes is that I started with one, one that I thought was one of the more interesting ones. And then I would practice that every day for a week. And by then I would learn it, know it by heart, by memory. And I would probably be able to play it well. The next week, I would play the first one that I did. Uh-huh. But, but not more than just playing it through, maybe just fixing a couple of bars and then leave it. Then uh-huh. I would practice the next one. And then I would use that for a week until I knew that by heart. The third week, I would do the two first and then add. So I would go like that. And in the end, I had sort of half the book because I don't think it's necessary to do absolutely... Some of them are doing exactly the same thing, I think. Uh-huh. So I, I would try to make a selection of about 25 of them or something, which was uh, covering a lot of different techniques. And then uh-huh. in the end, I could start every day by by um, 50 minutes playing all these etudes. And it uh-huh. was like a, like the pilot's uh, checklist before taking off in a plane, because then I knew everything was working. So. I've had different periods Uh, um, uh, of course when you when you turn professional and and uh, even like in my case when you when you have a family and two kids at home then maybe you don't have the time to practice one and a half hours of flesh before you start looking at your orchestral parts (laughs) Um, so I've uh, uh, recently the later after I started working professionally I designed a very small um, a warm-up uh, regime for myself which consists of a little bit of trill exercises uh, scales of three octaves and some vibrato exercises and it takes 25 minutes maybe and if I have the time I always start with that and that's sort of all this flesh and kreuzzer condensed into very 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 focused very narrow and, and it sort of keeps me going
0: wow oh. Mm. It's very interesting. Mm. What, what you are saying? Mm, I should try also. And uh, yeah, you know, I now reading one book which Henning Kragrud was (laughs) advising our podcast. Maybe you can also advise some books.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Ah! Oh, that's interesting. No actually I'm not I I don't think I'm so uh, I I feel a bit guilty when you ask that because I don't think I've been very good at um, at um, reading books related to my profession so
0: much Well but it's uh, should not uh, compulsory be, be related to your profession
1: Yeah no but actually um uh, uh, yes, but that's that's good. I, w- I will give one suggestion about a book that is not related to music at all. But first, I want to say there is one book related to music that I think is very interesting, and that's a book written by Nicolas Anouilh, huh. and it's called, in English, it's called Baroque Music: Music as Speech. And I think that's a very, very, very interesting book, because uh, uh, now we have been talking a little bit about uh, violin playing from a more technical point of view. But I think one of the most interesting aspects of music shaping is actually uh, my ideal is very often uh, the way we speak our native language. Of course, now English is not my native language, obviously, but But the way we naturally use our mother tongue, um, the way we phrase a sentence, the way we always know exactly the hierarchy between the syllables in a word, that kind of natural shape of things. I think that very often we, we lose that when we see music written on a piece of paper. Because what we tend to forget very often is that the tools that the I'm I'm now talking more of the sort of old music up to up to the romantic era, you know um, uh, era. Um, the tools that the composers such as uh, Mozart and Bach and Beethoven had to uh, write down their music it it is so primitive. Imagine they they have the structure of the bars, and the bars are always divided by three or two um and every note value is also divided by three or two only later we get maybe a quintuplet uh, well better used it sometimes but in general it's 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 very very basic mathematically written and i think that uh, we very often are too concerned about what's written on the paper and trying to do that exactly mm-hmm. but i think if you tried with note values and dynamic and things, if you tried to write down what you said in a sentence and you you were limited to those kind of measurements, those kind of units that they had for, for their composition it wouldn't it wouldn't uh, make any sense. it would be stiff oh, and I wow. think we have to remember that it's the same thing for music that um, the real uh, what what we are trying to um share with people and and what these composers were trying to write down it's so much bigger and so much more flexible and so much more nuanced than what it's possible to get from a two four uh, bar you know so i think we just need to remember that that we have to add this this way of communicating it and this way of shaping it and in that respect, I think that um, that the Baroque music, uh, music as speech by Alan Coor is is very very interesting. Ah, I can recommend that. And it, more on the normal literature, I must say that one of the one of the most uh, amazing books I've ever read was something called Midnight Children by Salman Rushdie. Ah. And I think that's a magic book. I think it's it's. Uh, it's it, it's just uh, really worthwhile, but um, but um, I ha- I have probably read this tiny little bit of the world's literature. I I'm no expert, but I just remember that of all the books I've read, that was that made a huge impression on me. And of course, many of the the big classical Russian uh, works, of course, also. And my only regret there is that when I write, when I read Dostoevsky or Tolstoy um, in a Norwegian uh, translation, I just have this feeling that I'm seeing a fantastic color image in black and white, you know.
0: Mm.
1: So, so I wish I could, I could uh, read these things in the, in the um, original language, but I, I'm not strong enough for that.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's very, very good. Mm. Yeah I read it in the original and it's yeah very very good one. Yeah. yeah. But uh, yeah, you know this interview was very much informative and uh, I I feel that there is information for many years to use. <laughs> and <laughs> I I want really to thank you for this great interview. Maybe you have some wishes to our audience. Um uh, I
1: I i I don't I haven't thought of a particular wish, but I think that um, um uh, we are in a very, very difficult time in the world now with the corona. I personally have been very, very lucky because I've been able to maintain much almost everything of my life and my my music making. But I'm very uh, aware of the fact that so many people. Are struggling so hard, and I think that uh, although it might sound very empty and very uh, childish in a way, I think that the 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 power of the music that we love so much, uh, maybe it's not enough to 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 save us through the whole thing, and maybe it's not it doesn't pay our bills, of course. But I can't say anything that that other than that it must be the greatest comfort when things are, are difficult to be able to to play and listen to to this great art that we are all part of. So, so I hope that even though if times are difficult, uh, that we don't we don't forget uh, this original in intentional love that we have for for uh, for our profession so i think maybe that can help a little bit at least
0: oh thank you thank you very much and uh, thank you to our audience for listening and uh, follow up our channel and i will try to bring some more interesting interviews thank you goodbye